Hi, I'm Spencer Christian. I've been a broadcast journalist and weathercaster for more than 50 years. And over those years, I've met many remarkable people. Remarkable people with remarkable insight. Now, I'll be talking with them about the issues of the day and about their personal journeys. I'll even share a few of my own. So come join me after the weather, and we'll learn together. Hello and welcome to After the Weather. I'm your host, Spencer Christian. Uh, We're going to be talking today about arguably the most remarkable advancement so far in the field of space observation and exploration. It's the James Webb Space Telescope, the most powerful and advanced space telescope ever, which is delivering stunning images of the farthest reaches of space that we have ever probed. And my guest can tell us all about it. He is Gerald McKeegan, who serves on the Chabot Space and Science Center's Board of Directors, and he is a member of the East Bay Astronomical Society. Welcome. Good to have you with us, Gerald. Good. How are you? I'm doing fine, doing fine, and just happy to have you with us today because this is uh, an exciting thing, this uh, James Webb uh, Space Telescope. Tell us why it's such a big deal. What What is it showing us that we have not seen before? Uh, so that the advantages of the James Webb Space Telescope is twofold. First of all, it's viewing in the infrared part of the spectrum. Uh, infrared is... Uh, what we normally associate with heat. When you uh, feel the heat coming off of your heater or a warm object, that's infrared radiation. And uh, infrared actually covers a much broader range than visible light, the light that we see. Uh, So the James Webb Space Telescope views in infrared. Also, it has a much larger mirror than the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, the Hubble Space Telescope mirror was 2.4 meters in diameter. The James Webb Space Telescope uh, mirror is six and a half meters in diameter. So it's quite a bit bigger. Mm-hmm. And that means it can gather more light. It can see fainter. It can see farther. And it can see more detail. Um, so those are some of the advantages. The reason we want to look in infrared is because it allows us to see so many things that we cannot see in visible light. Um, a lot of what happens out in space is is hidden from us because there are clouds out in space, right. clouds of gas and dust that obscure our view of whatever's beyond those clouds. Um, that's invisible light. But in infrared, the infrared radiation actually penetrates those clouds. And so we can see what's beyond those clouds. In addition, one of the interesting things, one of the advantages that the James Webb Space Telescope will bring to us is that it lets us look farther back in space. And in other words, farther back in time. When you're looking out in space, you're always looking backward in time. The farther away you look, the farther back in time you're looking. Right. Now, uh, the universe is expanding. And because of that, objects that are very far away, billions of light years away, are moving away from us at a very high rate of speed. And that causes the light coming from those objects to be stretched out. We say that the wavelength has been stretched out, shifted from the visible part of the spectrum into the infrared part of the spectrum. So very distant galaxies, 
some of the first galaxies to be forming when the universe was first starting out after the Big Bang. We can't see those galaxies because they're so redshifted, and Hubble Space Telescope is only looking in the visible spectrum. Those redshifted light from those distant galaxies has shifted into the infrared part of the spectrum. Right. So the James Webb Space Telescope will let us see those very distant galaxies. Now, I'm glad you mentioned you use the expression looking back in time because I want to understand clearly what you're saying here. Some of the light that we're seeing, some of the images we're seeing are not only from such a great distance that the objects generating those images are no longer where they appear to be, but some of those objects generating those images probably either have burned out or don't even exist anymore. Is that correct? That's quite possible, yes, uh, especially when we're talking about the first generation galaxies, uh, those galaxies, most of the stars in them have long since uh, died away. Mm -hmm. um, some of the stars may still be there, but the galaxy today would look very different than what we see when we're looking back in time. Right. You know, when we talk about uh, the distances to objects, we describe those distances in light years. Uh, that's describing how far back in time. So if I look at a galaxy that's a million light years away, that galaxy, actually the closest galaxy is two and a half million light years away. So two and a half million light years away, we're seeing it the way it looked two and a half million years ago, because right. that's how long it took the light to reach us. So when we're talking about looking far back near the beginning of the of the universe, the, the Big Bang, uh, we're talking 3.8 or 13.8 billion light years away. And the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be able to look almost that far back. So we're going to see the first galaxies as they are forming uh, 13 and a half billion years ago. Now, now, what do these incredible images from so long ago tell us about, uh, tell us that is useful, that, that we need to know? Well, to scientists, you know, we're all scientists in a way, and and we all want to know, you know, how did we get here? Why are we here? What's our purpose? Mm -hmm. Scientists want to understand the origins of the universe. They want to understand how galaxies formed, how stars formed, how planets formed, you know. And of course, the question that we are all asking is, is there life out there in the universe right. um, other than on the Earth? And it's possible that the James Webb Space Telescope will help answer those questions. Given how staggeringly vast the universe is, I'm, I would imagine that the elements that would be the building blocks of life as we know it must exist somewhere else out there besides right here on our yes. planet. Yes, yes. So what, what are we finding that uh, are good, strong clues to, to the existence of even some primitive form of life? Well, one of the things that uh, we are already finding out in space is amino acids. Amino acids are a, a primary building block of, of life. Uh, proteins are made out of chains of amino acids. Uh, of course, we're all made up out of, of proteins. And we are actually seeing amino acids out in those clouds that we see out in space. We, we see evidence of amino acids. And of course, all of the basic elements that we are formed from 
carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus. We see those elements everywhere we look in the universe. Right. So we, we know that the basic building blocks are out there. And it's just trying to find out, is there some place where the right combination of elements and liquid water and whatever else it takes, energy, uh, to form life. Right. And there is a good chance that uh, the James Webb Space Telescope may find evidence of that, especially as it analyzes the atmospheres of exoplanets, planets orbiting around other stars. Well, yeah, tell me more about exoplanets, because I, it's a term I you know, I see a lot when I read about astronomy, but I'm not sure we all understand what exoplanets are. Okay, exoplanets just refers to planets orbiting around other stars. Mm -hmm. uh, we've long speculated that they're planets around other stars, but uh, it wasn't until the 1990s that we actually started uh, actually observing uh, exoplanets around other stars. The techniques that we use right now for finding exoplanets uh, are somewhat limited. Uh, the one technique is, is the star wobble technique, where we look at uh, a, a star and we watch carefully to see if it's moving back and forth relative to us. And that is an indication that there's a planet orbiting around it. It's massive enough and close, close enough to where it's actually causing the star to wobble back and forth as the planet orbits around it. Mm -hmm. So that's one technique that we use. We don't see the planet itself. We just see the wobble of the star. And so we're sort of backing into realizing that there's a planet there. Another technique is called the transit technique. And with that, uh, a star might have a planet that orbits around it in such a way that the planet passes between us and the star. And when that happens, the planet blocks the light from the star. So we see a small dip in the brightness of the star for a certain amount of time, and then it brightens back up again. And by measuring how long that dip lasts and how deep that dip is, we can tell a lot about the planet that's orbiting the star. But again, we're not observing the planet itself. Right. We're just seeing the effect of the planet. Important for people to understand we're not looking at pictures as we know them that can be taken with a, with a camera. Right, right. But with the James Webb Space Telescope, we're actually going to be able to take pictures of exoplanets, planets around other stars. And more importantly, we're going to be able to see planets that are farther away from the star. One of the problems, especially with the, the wobble technique, is it works well for planets that are close to the star. So we're finding lots of exoplanets that are very close to the star, that orbit around the star in just a few days. Um, what we want to see are planets that orbit around, you know, months or even years in what we call the habitable zone. The habitable zone is that uh, distance from the star where a planet with a modest atmosphere can have liquid water on the surface. And we believe that's a critical uh, component for finding life. Right. So we want to be able to see planets in habitable zones. The James Webb Space Telescope has uh, four different instruments on it. Three of them are equipped with a device called a coronagraph. And a coronagraph, when you look at a distant star, you 
put the coronagraph in front of it so you block the light from the star and then you can see the planets that are orbiting around the star. And so the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be able to image, directly image, planets around other stars, which is something we've not been able to do very well um, using these other techniques. In, in this search for life in other neighborhoods of the universe, if you will, uh, I, I realize that our space program, our search of space, is a tiny, tiny uh, span of time compared with the age of our of our planet. But are you surprised that in all this time we've been exploring space, we have yet to find uh, any 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 signs of any complex signs of life out there? Um, I'm not surprised. Uh, in reality, we, despite the fact that life has existed on Earth for 3.8 billion years, it's only been within the last 50 or 60 years or so that we've really started studying what's outside of our own solar system. Uh, astronomy prior to the 20th century was mostly about our own solar system. And it wasn't until the 20th century that we started looking beyond and really trying to understand and observe and measure what's beyond our own solar system. Mm -hmm. So we've actually been doing this for a very short period of time relative to you know, how long life has been on Earth. Uh, so I'm not surprised that, that we haven't found anything yet. But Again, we are finding hints that life should be out there. If the right conditions exist on a planet, you know, all the elements are there. All of the, the, the chemistry is there. So, uh, you know, most scientists today are fairly certain that there is life of some form mm -hmm. on other planets in the galaxy and in the universe. Right. It's just a matter of finding it. Uh, can we talk a little bit about black holes? Uh, I, I'm not sure I even understand exactly what a black hole is, but I hear uh, and read much about it when I read about uh, things in, in astronomy. And I, it, you know, it creates the the image in your mind of some uh, dark gulf out there in the universe, in the universe that could swallow up uh, our planet or our solar system. So exactly what are we talking about when we talk about black holes and, and how much concern do we need to have about them? You know, it's funny. Uh, I'm an astronomer up at the Chabot Space and Science Center. We get visitors, uh, thousands of visitors every year. And that is the most commonly asked question. Is, <laughs> what is a black hole and what can it do? And is it true that it can reach out millions of miles and suck everything in? Right. So there's a, a lot of misconceptions about black holes. A black hole is, a, is the region around an object we call the singularity. If you can imagine taking the mass of, say, seven or eight suns and squeezing it down to the size of a peppercorn Oof. or even smaller, you've got a very small but very massive object. The gravitational pull of that object is very strong when you are close to it. In fact, when you're close enough, the gravitational pull of that singularity is so strong that light cannot escape it. So there is a region around the singularity we call the black hole. Right. And within that region, you're too close to the singularity for light to escape. Um, but beyond that, 
light can escape and in fact does escape. That's how we've been able to image black holes um, in a couple of uh, other uh, galaxies. Um, if an object comes close to the a black hole, say a star or a cloud of gas and dust, it gets pulled in once it gets close enough to that object. But we're not talking millions or billions of miles. We're talking, in many cases, relatively close. Um, a, a, uh, a black hole, the same mass as our sun, would have a, uh, the black hole itself would be less than five miles across. So anything outside of that distance can actually survive and not be pulled in. Oh, okay. um, in fact, if if we were to squeeze our sun down to, you know, again, the size of a peppercorn or smaller, Earth would remain in orbit around the sun. Wow. We could still orbit it. That's um, so that's, that's one of the misconceptions is, yeah. you know, the yeah. black holes reaching out. Um, there are some other effects from black holes, uh, light passing near a black hole, but not through it, but passing near it is bent because the black hole is actually distorting space. And so uh, a, if you're looking at a distant star and a black hole happens to come close to your line of sight, the image of that star is going to be shifted or bent or refocused, or even you might actually see double images or something like that. So uh, it can have some pretty profound effects on light passing through the uh, universe. That's, that's the best explanation I've ever heard of a black hole and the most reassuring one, I might add. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know that you also had Chabot's um, near-Earth asteroid search and tracking program. That's uh, right. what, what useful discoveries has has that revealed? Because, uh, you know, from time to time, you hear concerns about an asteroid crashing into the Earth and getting rid of us the way it got rid of dinosaurs. Well, that's actually... Very unlikely to happen, but there are literally millions of near-Earth asteroids out there. Uh, so far, we've discovered about 30,000 of them. Uh, most of them are very small and do not represent a threat to the Earth. They are so small that if they were to enter the Earth's atmosphere, they would burn up high in the atmosphere. And at best, you might find a few pebbles on the ground that, that are the remnants of those asteroids. But there are some big ones out there. Uh, especially we are concerned about asteroids more than uh, a thousand meters, one kilometer in diameter. Those are the ones that can really do some serious damage. Right. Um, smaller ones, uh, say 100 meters or 200 meters in diameter, those are potential city busters, but they aren't going to cause the extinction of all life on Earth. Um, but in reality, there are very few of those. Uh, we, Out of the 30,000 uh, near-Earth asteroids we know about, maybe 800 to 900 of them are larger than one kilometer. And we know where most of them are. In fact, more than 90% of them, we know where they are. And we know that they don't pose any near-term threat to us. Right. But because there's at least a million of those near-Earth asteroids out there, we've only found 30,000. So there's still a lot of them to be found. And right. that's what uh, the ongoing research is doing, is trying to find more of those near-Earth asteroids and you know determine if any of them uh, are headed our way 
Supposing that one is headed our way, do we uh, possess the technology, I guess it would be military technology, to somehow alter the course of it or to shatter it and pulverize it? Well, what you want to do is alter the course, uh, uh, deflect the asteroid so it does not hit the Earth. To do that, you need to uh, change the orbit of the asteroid long before it reaches the Earth. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, NASA has a project. Uh, it's called the DART mission. And the DART mission is a mission to uh, test one of the technologies for deflecting an asteroid it's called the kinetic impactor uh, technique and the dart mission is a, a spacecraft that is on its way to a an asteroid called didymos and didymos has a smaller asteroid orbiting around it called dimorphos and uh, the DART mission, the, the spacecraft is going to slam into that smaller asteroid mm. and attempt to deflect the orbit. Now, the, the main spacecraft is carrying a much smaller spacecraft piggybacked onto it. That uh, spacecraft will uh, detach from the main spacecraft and it will be the observer. And so the main spacecraft will continue on. It will slam into that small orbiting asteroid, and then the observer spacecraft will uh, watch to see what happens to the asteroid, how is it affected, it, you know, does it get a crater on it, does it break apart, uh, you know, how does this impact affect that asteroid, and how much is the orbit of that asteroid uh, changed by this impact. Right. And so this is this is really the first text of technology that we would eventually use to deflect an asteroid if we see one coming. I want to ask you about an award that you received from NASA some years ago called the Silver Snoopy Award. Tell me about that. Yeah, a long time ago, back in the uh, Apollo era, uh -huh. Many of the Apollo astronauts were big fans of the Peanuts cartoon series. And uh, in fact, one of the missions, the, the uh, command module and the lunar excursion module were named Snoopy and Charlie Brown. So right. the, 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 those astronauts were big fans of it. Uh, during the Apollo mission, uh, they developed an award to be given to engineers or program people or anybody who did anything substantial uh, regarding flight safety or or somehow uh, uh, making making the the technology work better. Uh, there's a variety of criteria that they have, but it's mostly around flight safety for human spaceflight. And in the 19, in 1986, there was the Challenger accident where the space shuttle Challenger uh, was was destroyed a couple minutes after launch, and at that time, I was a manager for a company that was providing materials for the space shuttle. Uh, in this case, it was for the solid rocket boosters. And there were some concerns that we had had prior to that accident about how some of our material was being used on the space shuttle. And of course, after the accident, uh, NASA started paying a lot more attention to some of the concerns that yes. we and other organizations had about uh, some of the things we were doing. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that was um, a long process of, of educating NASA why there was a concern and, uh, you know, coming up with a mitigation to to prevent 
the issues from happening in the future. And I often, it's interesting, I often felt like I was a nattering nabob of negativity <laughs> when I was talking to, to NASA. They, they didn't want to hear what I was telling them, but eventually they, they saw the way. So um, I, I kind of refer to the Silver Snoopy Award as my pain in the neck award. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love it. Any, anyway, what, what happened is, and this was a total surprise to me, uh, sometime after the the space shuttle resumed flying, uh-huh. um, there an astronaut came to the facility where I was working and presented me with a Silver Snoopy Award, which is a certificate and a little plaque and a little pin that shows Snoopy wearing a space helmet. <laughs> and it's, it's a pretty prestigious thing for. Oh, yeah, it sounds great. I'm, yeah. I'm guessing your fascination with all things space must go way back to your early childhood. Oh, yeah. Yeah, back to the to the fifties. Um, the first time I remember getting interested in it was um, when I saw Werner von Braun um, in a program uh, that uh, Disney used to do on Sundays. Uh, they they kind of did a variety show, sometimes a cartoon, sometimes documentaries, uh, and one of their episodes was about human spaceflight to the moon. Now, this is in the 50s when nobody was going to the moon yet. Um, and Werner von Braun uh, talked about uh, how we were going to get to the moon. He showed models of spacecraft, none of which looked like what we actually sent to the moon, but uh, they were pretty fascinating to me as a, as a child. And that got me hooked. And then a, a couple other books. There was a book that I read by Robert Heinlein. Uh, there was uh, a program back in the late 50s, actually by the United States Army, trying to encourage um, uh, high school students to learn about rocketry. So they were actually encouraging you to build your own rockets. Yeah. And and so I that's how I got interested in it. And it became my career. I worked in the aerospace industry for more than 40 years. And wow. most of that was on spacecraft. I, I remember some of those programs from the 50s with uh, Werner von Braun. You and I are obviously in the same generation. <laughs> and I also was fascinated by all this this uh, new science we're learning about uh, space exploration. Of course, in the ensuing years, you have uh, obviously stayed with it and learned a lot more than, than I have. <laughs> I chose a, a different profession. I, I, I want to ask you um, more about the, the James Webb Space Telescope. But first of all, tell us about the man James Webb for whom this is named. Well, James Webb was uh, a former uh, director of NASA. Right. And so the spacecraft has been na- named after him or the, the telescope has been named. Telescope, yeah, and exactly uh, where is the telescope? What what is its location or position relative to Earth? Uh, I know it was launched uh, well, well, December twenty fifth, Christmas Day, right of last last year. Right, it was la- launched last year. The the uh, James Webb Space Telescope is or- orbiting around a point in space called the Lagrange point. Mm-hmm. There are actually five Lagrange points for the Earth. Uh, and the one it's orbiting at is farther from the Earth. It's a, almost a million miles away from the Earth, just a little bit less than a million miles away from the Earth. And it's directly opposite the Earth from the Sun. At that point, the Sun's gravity, 
the Earth's gravity and the centripetal force of the spacecraft orbiting around the sun all balance out mm. so that the, the uh, James Webb Space Telescope can just orbit around that point. And by turning the, the spacecraft so that the sun shield, the James Webb Space Telescope has a very large tennis court sized sun shield on it, and they turn it so that the sun shield is facing the sun and the earth and the moon, blocking the light and the heat from those objects. And that allows them to look out into space um, and, and see infrared uh, images. Right. In order to do that, the spacecraft has to be very, very cold because you don't want to be detecting heat from the spacecraft. You want to be detecting infrared from, from right. out in space. Yeah. So, um, well, before we wind this conversation down, where can people go to see, to access these images that we're getting from, from the James Webb? Well, fortunately, NASA is being very generous in releasing these images as they are generated. Uh, so NASA has a website, actually has a couple of websites where you can go to view the images. Uh, if you just uh, search uh, James Webb Space Telescope images, you'll find lots of examples. Uh, and, and it's very interesting to look at them because the, the because of the range of uh, infrared that, that the James Webb Space Telescope can see, uh, they can actually divide the spectrum up into slices, if you will, and take images of the same object in different slices of the infrared spectrum and combine them or look at them separately. So it's it's pretty amazing to look at, uh, you know, for example, recently there was an image of Mars that was released, actually a couple of images of Mars that was released, one of which shows it, it looks almost like a visible light image. Uh, you can see a lot of details. Um, and, and then the other one, it looks like somebody shined a really bright light on Mars. And that's in fact, exactly what happened. It's wow. showing sunlight coming off of Mars and showing how different parts of Mars react to that sunlight. Uh, there's a region on Mars called the Hellas Basin, which has a concentration of uh, carbon dioxide. And in this image that looks very bright, you can actually see where the Hellas Basin is because you're getting uh, absorption of some of that infrared by the carbon dioxide. This is this is just fascinating stuff. I, 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 I wish our listeners could see you right now because as I'm looking at you as we record this, you look like you're sitting in um, a, a space capsule uh, or a, I, what was a space shuttle cockpit. Space shuttle. Yeah, space yeah, shuttle. Yeah, 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 yeah. With all it's, my, of... it's my background. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, one of these days, maybe we'll offer this podcast with video as well as audio. Uh, Gerald McKeegan from uh, the, um, the Chevalier Space and Science Center, thank you for joining us today. It's been a fascinating discussion. After the Weather is a product of ABC7. Be sure to subscribe. And if you liked our program, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. We'll talk to you next time. Take care.